turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, Acts chapter 4. We're picking up in the midst of a trial for Peter and John, and the man who had been healed is apparently with them as well. Peter has just proclaimed the power of Jesus' name, his identity as the Messiah, charged those who were trying him and John with the crucifixion of Jesus, but testified as well to the resurrection of Jesus. And then after citing an Old Testament prophecy in keeping with what they were doing, he asserts their salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through no one but him. As we go through the next verses here, we'll see how the Sanhedrin responds to Peter and John, what they perceive, observe, and then their response to the overall situation. Look at verse 13. It says, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or, to, or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, the prayer at the end of the chapter as they go and report to the church will be uh, our next subject in the book of Acts as we look at the response following this scene. But there's enough here in these verses to see some principles from God's word that I think are helpful, guiding for us. Also, the nature of sin and opposition to the gospel. What did Jesus said to his disciples long before this scene? 
Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And I think it's interesting what Jesus had foretold there was broader than this scene, but certainly if you think about what he said, that they would be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Even those who crucified Jesus, this ministry of the apostles was to give testimony to them. And what were the disciples to do in such a circumstance? They were to really trust in God. They were to trust in the Spirit of God. When Jesus said those words, the Spirit had not yet been given, but now the Spirit has been given, and it's in the power of the Spirit that Peter has proclaimed. If you look back at verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So who is filling Peter to speak to the Sanhedrin, it is the spirit of, and Jesus said, your father. This is God the Father. This is the Holy Spirit. This is, of course, also the spirit of Christ, but the spirit is there, the Holy Spirit is there to empower them and enable them to witness and to say what needs to be said. Jesus had foretold the opposition, and we need to remember that as we have God's authority, we have the command of God to preach the gospel, but we also should expect opposition to the preaching of the message. You should expect opposition when you speak to people about the gospel. It's not always the case. But Jesus, in his continued teaching to his disciples there in Matthew chapter 10, said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? In other words, how Jesus is treated if we're preaching the message of the gospel, we should expect that there would be similar treatment. And I think certainly as you read through the book of Acts, that's borne out. Certainly as you read the history of the church, that's borne out. That there would be opposition to the gospel. And that causes us sometimes to fear, doesn't it? We don't like opposition. And so on the heels of Jesus' instruction... He says, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. In other words, there's a day coming when judgment is going to be given, certainly for those who oppose the gospel. And he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, Fear the Lord. Fear God. Fear 
Jesus said, him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And again, I think it's interesting to look at this scene, even you could say Pentecost as well, and you see Peter, and he's been transformed. He had before feared even to admit that he knew Jesus. Now he is testifying before the rulers of Israel while he's on trial, boldly. And certainly the Spirit of God is giving him aid. And if you know God and you have the Spirit of God within, he's going to be there with you too. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. And you fear even to bring up the subject. Don't forget the Holy Spirit is there to help you. And the one that you need to fear is not their face. You need to fear God. You may receive opposition. You may be surprised that as you bring up the gospel message that God is already working in that person's heart. But we should expect opposition. I think it's the opposition that we see here and throughout the book of Acts. We can just recognize that it's going to come. But God will be with us, and it's the good news of the gospel that we're preaching. As we begin in this response to Peter's witness, the end of verse 12 there, we're getting some insight as to what were the Sadducees, the captain of the temple guard, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, what were all of these rulers and elders of Israel thinking? What did they observe? What did they see? What was significant to them? And if you read through this text, you realize that we've got some general statements, but then they go into a private conference where the disciples are excluded. You could expect that from the part of, on the part of the apostles that they're observing what's taking place. But what I'm saying is some of this scene would have been secluded from anyone who is a believer, or so it seems. I say that, but if we just go back to the Gospels and remember that Nicodemus became a disciple of Christ, he was a ruler in Israel. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council. Could they have been present but not agreeing? And then we also have the apostle Paul, or Saul as he's known, who is alive at this time. Uh, he may have been present in uh, the council. We are not told that. We might expect to be told that. We know that he did work on behalf of the high priest. So the relationships between Saul and the leaders of Israel were present. He could have been privy, but Luke is giving us some insight here that we would not have seen without some way that information being given to him. But let's look at least at what is being said in public here, the conference of the rulers as they come together, uh, come together and consider it. Look at verse 13. As they make some observations about Peter and John, it says, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and seeing the men, the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. 
And so what are they thinking? How are they perceiving these men and what had taken place? Well, first of all, they observe an obvious confidence. Peter's proclamation as he's filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaiming what he said in verses 8 and down through verse 12 is very confident. Confident in terms of the proclamation of Jesus, the power that enabled this man to be healed, confidence even in quoting scripture that is apropos or appropriate for uh, what they believe Jesus to be, and then a, a proclamation of the source of salvation. And these are all confident statements. That word that is translated there, confidence, parousia, means outspokenness or frankness, boldness. The idea, one has said in Greek literature, was to describe a situation or one's opinion very freely. In other words, to not hold back in any way. There was just a freedom of speech. Paul had this kind of boldness in Rome when he finally made it there. In Acts chapter 28, it says that he spoke with all openness, unhindered. There was nothing keeping him from saying all that he wanted to say freely. Where does that come from? Don't miss this because it's an important point for all of us. It does come from the Spirit of God who enables us to speak freely. We have to remember in verse 8 that Peter was, as he said these words, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's in part why I believe that Paul asked the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, to pray for him that he would have boldness in proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. So if you lack boldness, don't just compare yourself with another Christian and say that person's more bold than me. They may have personality or characteristics that that tend towards that, but don't forget who Peter is and what's happened to him. And that God can transform someone who is timid into someone who is bold. That doesn't mean obnoxious. Uh, That doesn't mean in any way sinfully uh, dominating in uh, a conversation. It just means the ability to speak freely, frankly, uh, communicating all the truth that needs to be communicated. Uh, In fact, as the story continues later in this chapter, the request that the church makes, look down at verse 29, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, as they're praying in light of the threats that come their way, verse 29 in this chapter, it says, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Okay, so they are praying for this, and you can pray for this. And you can ask others to pray for you for this. Peter has this. Why does he have it? Because the Spirit of God is enabling him. And why could we not have that same boldness? Why couldn't we? We we can. Have the same Spirit, if he lives inside of you, to be bold when it comes to the proclamation of the truth. Another observation that they make about the apostles here, middle of the verse, not only their 
confidence, but that they understood that they were uneducated and untrained. Unlearned, untrained, the word there, uneducated, means without letters. The idea is they had not had any formal training in what they so confidently are speaking about. And the word untrained, we get our word idiot from. I don't think it would have the same connotation. Certainly it wouldn't. We're not talking anything derogatory, but just these are outsiders. They don't have the skills that reflect the training over time. They're lay people. They're not scholars and scribes, but they're speaking confidently about these things, and and they're taking note of the fact that here there's confidence and skill, but then on the other hand, they haven't gone through the process that many of them had gone through in being trained to be where they were in their position as the rulers of Israel, and that amazed them. It was astounding to them that someone could just sort of come out of the fabric of the people of Israel and suddenly be put up in front of everyone and have this kind of wisdom and skill and confidence in speaking. And these are fishermen. They lived on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They used to cast nets, catch fish, sell fish. Manual labors. So how do they get this learning? How did they get this knowledge? How did they get this skill? And we're told there at the end of the verse, another observation here, or recognition, you might say, it says, and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. This is what had taken place in the lives of these men. They had spent time learning from Jesus as Jesus had taught them. As Jesus had given them many lessons, as he had taught them by the seaside, as he had taught them in the boat, as he had taught them in the mountain, as he had taught them in the garden, as he had taught them in homes, Jesus would teach them as they were going places. All the time, Jesus was teaching, and we have his teaching in the Gospels. And there's a resemblance between Jesus and these men, because they even asked about Jesus as he, at at, at times, is facing these leaders of Israel. They asked the question, John 17, or excuse me, John 7, verse 15, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And how did he have the instruction and the wisdom? How did he become, for his own disciples, a teacher and a master? Well, you might say he was the Son of God, and he is. You might say he's very God of very God and God from eternity who came in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh, and yes, he is. But when Jesus was was asked the source of his teaching or referenced the source of his teaching, you know who his teacher was? It was the Father. 
the father's words given to him became the words that he gave to those that he taught. So when it says here that they were with Jesus, Jesus received from the father what he taught, not that he did not natively have wisdom. He is the wisdom of God, but the words that he gave came from God. He also had the spirit of God without any measure upon him. So as he spoke, he spoke with that same spirit. And so here's these disciples who had been with Jesus. And that's in part what gave them this confidence, this skill, along with the Holy Spirit of God. Just by way of application, the end of that verse has oftentimes been applied in a way that I think is helpful. And that is, as any believer has access to the scripture and able to spend time with God through his word and also spend time in prayer, you realize you can have fellowship with Jesus and spend time with Jesus and people can recognize that you have been with Jesus. And I'd ask you that question. First of all, do you know Jesus? But do you spend time with Jesus? And as you spend time with him, do others see Jesus in your life and in your behavior, in your speech, in your ways? Do they see that? Spurgeon said the best life of Christ is his living biography written out in the words and actions of his people. If we were what we profess to be, and what we should be, we should be pictures of Christ. Such striking likenesses of him that the world would not have to hold us up by the hour together and say, well, it seems somewhat of a likeness. But they would, when they once beheld us, exclaim, he has been with Jesus. He has been taught of him. He is like him. He has caught the very idea of the holy man of Nazareth, and he works it out in his life and everyday actions. Could people say that your life is like Jesus and that you have been with Jesus? Do you have a boldness like Jesus? Do you have a love like Jesus? Are you kind and gentle like Jesus? Do you have a zeal like Jesus for the things of God? Do you have a self-denial like Jesus? Do you forgive others like Jesus? And Spurgeon went on to say, in all ways and by all means, so live that all may say of you, he has been with Jesus, or she has been with Jesus. There was something about these men that resembled Jesus. Could it be said of Fallsbury and Bible Church, of each one of us? There's something about that church that's like Jesus. This is a compliment. If we're making and maturing disciples that are becoming more like Jesus Christ, this should be the case. You should be like Jesus. I should be like Jesus. How does that happen? Spend time with Jesus. 
under His Word, in prayer, serving Him. Verse 13 ends with that phrase. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. But there's another response here in addition to their amazement, and that is they're speechless. End of verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. There was nothing they could do to refute this. They were like the opponents of Stephen in chapter 6 when it says that Stephen was speaking with wisdom by the Spirit. It says in chapter 6, verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. Again, Jesus had foretold regarding his disciples that there would be persecution, that when they faced persecution, they needed to trust in God. God would help them. Jesus said in Luke 21, 15, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. They just can't refute what has taken place. And you know what their their issue is when they actually start to talk with one another? In other words, they're making these observations as they come together and they start to talk about what are we going to do? Notice how they frame it. Look at verse 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do? Now, it would be great if they had stopped there because it would suggest that they're actually thinking about the content of what Peter just said and the reality that this man had been healed, that this might be a work of God. Oh, but these are, these are pragmatists. These are blind and hard-hearted opponents of Jesus. They're not going to concede, even if what has happened is miraculous, they're not going to concede a point to Jesus. And instead, they they ask the question, what should we do with these men? What are we going to do with these guys? Verse 15, it says they began to confer with one another. This tells us that there actually is a more extended conversation than just these couple of verses. That phrase that's translated, they began to confer, the tense of the verb there suggests it's an imperfect verb, which means it's an ongoing conversation, and they're trying to figure out in their conversation what they're going to do. And their dilemma is that they have a man healed, and that's very obvious not only to them, but to these thousands outside in Jerusalem. And they have Jesus' name here that's been given credit. But they want to get rid of these guys who are preaching the resurrection. These guys who are preaching Jesus. So they're between the proverbial rock and a hard place. 
and they're trying to make a decision that would be good for them, pragmatic for them, to somehow squash this influence. Notice what they say, verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. What does that suggest? That if it wasn't known to everybody in Jerusalem that they would have denied it, that they would have tried to sweep something under the rug? Kind of like what they did when the soldiers came and gave testimony that an angel came and rolled away the stone and something happened. I mean, they they told this same group of men this, and what did they do? They said, here's some money. Go tell people that the disciples came and stole the body. That's how they dealt with that situation. That was a little bit more, that was more private. Maybe easier for them to think that they could manage, but they're obviously not managing it. At least not effectively. Look at verse 17. So here's their decision. They devise a plan of containment. They want this message to be contained. Yes, the miracles happen. We can't deny that, but we want to contain the explanation for it. And so by the use of their authority, they're going to threaten the apostles. Verse 17, it says, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And this is their decision. Containment. That's somehow going to stop this message. And there, you, you look at the, the, the specifics of what they're saying. This is to Peter and John. They're going to tell Peter and John that they cannot any longer speak to anyone. This is complete silence. This is censorship. You can't mention Jesus. You can't explain what has happened. And you can't say anything else about it. And that's a significant prohibition. It's a significant censorship. And as you see this blind and hard-hearted, pragmatic opposition to the gospel, they're not considering the truth of what happened, that it could be explained in any consistency with the name or power or messiahship of Jesus. It just can't be that. We're just going to do something totally different than that. And, and so we're going to threaten the disciples or threaten these apostles. That's our decision. Look at how Peter and John handle that. And I think there's, a, there's really a guide here for how we should respond when opposition comes to us especially in this kind of way, so that we, for some reason, somebody tells us we can't preach the gospel message. Look at how they respond. So they had conferred privately, but then they brought the apostles again. That's what it says in verse 18. When they had summoned them, they were outside the room. Somehow they weren't privy to those discussions. They brought them back in, and they commanded them not to speak or, significant word here, teach, at all 
in the name of Jesus. So this is a prohibition of speaking about this situation, but it's also teaching. That's the prohibition. I mean, it basically, you think about what the apostles were tasked with by Jesus. If they were going to keep this command, they would have to obviously disobey Jesus. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature. You are my witnesses. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. So, so what they're suggesting is a in direct conflict. What they're commanding is in direct conflict with the command of Jesus. Okay, and when when an earthly authority under God is giving a command that is contrary to our heavenly authority and his command, what is our choice? It's what Peter later said. We must obey God rather than men. But but the way that Peter and John respond in verse 19 is to let them do what they're supposed to do in this scene, to be judges. I mean, these are the judges of Israel. So Peter's going to suggest that they judge something. Verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. So as Peter responds and John responds here, they are raising the issue of authority. Who really is their highest authority, their governing authority? Now, they would certainly not dismiss at all the leadership of Israel and say they have no authority. No, they were granted authority by God. But in this case, what the authority is commanded is, is, is actually in direct contradiction with what God had already commanded them. And so Peter's raising that issue of authority and saying, you be the judge. Really, what you have commanded us is in contradiction to a command we've already been given by God. Look at verse 20. There's something else here in their resolution. Not only are they considering the authority that they have to continue to do what they're commanded to do, but they're also motivated by what they have seen. They're motivated by what they have personally witnessed. Jesus has called them witnesses. They are witnesses to his resurrection. They had been witnesses to the crucifixion. They had seen who Jesus was. They know that he's ascended into heaven now and in addition to what their obligation is, they're also moved internally to proclaim this message. Verse 20, it says, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So this is their purpose, to be witnesses according to, of course, the direction of Christ, but their own internal compulsion to preach the gospel. They're basically saying, we have to preach the gospel. You got a double negative there in verse 20. We cannot stop. The idea is we cannot not do this. I have to do this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could catch that compulsion in our own hearts? Not 
because we've seen the Lord Jesus with our own eyes. No, we haven't. We've seen him with the eyes of faith. But wouldn't it be wonderful if in addition to the obligation that we have through the commands of God, that there would be this internal desire consistent with what God has said, that we just have to do this. I just, I've got to. I must do this. And they did have the commands. They had the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the command of Christ. That's the promise of Christ that outlines what they're supposed to do when he ascends into heaven. Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And as he gave the commission there in John's gospel, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus sent them for this very purpose. This is what their life is about now. It's what defined their life. Jesus had said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power. They had been enabled by the Holy Spirit to do what they're doing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Sometimes there are either programs or suggested methods developed for the purpose of inspiring or helping people to preach the gospel. And I'm certainly interested in training and help in that regard. We all need it. But you think about the apostles here. This is not really a program that has developed. This is something that God had done in them. He had placed his spirit in them. He was empowering them, and they could not help but witness to it. They couldn't stop doing it. Even when threatened by the highest authority, they knew that Certainly, God's authority was greater. God had commanded them, and they had been witnesses to the gospel itself, and this is who they are now. And it's what defined their lives. Preaching Christ under his authority, compelled to by what they had seen, experienced, and by the power of the Spirit, they're doing now what they would continue to do by God's grace, not that they were perfect, but through the rest of their lives to give the testimony to Christ. I do think it's significant that the Spirit is mentioned here and throughout the book of Acts, and certainly for our encouragement as well, that we also have that same Spirit who empowers and enables us to do the very same thing. Henry Martin, a missionary, 
said the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we must become. And so for Charles Wesley, he preached the gospel to many people, including those who were headed to the gallows, so that he might save someone who was about to die on the gallows. He was preaching the message of the gospel. A friend of Henry Martin said, Christ will find his way into the hearts of men, and there will be a great company to praise him. I know not why we should wish to be saved, but for this purpose, or why, but for this purpose, we should desire the conversion of heathens, Turks, and infidels. To find them at the feet of Jesus will be a lovely sight. Our feeble voices cannot praise him much. We shall be glad to see them clapping their hands and casting their crowns before him, for all in heaven and earth cannot sufficiently praise him. He says, I see no cause to wish for anything but the advancement of that knowledge by which there is some accession of praise to his holy and blessed name. And that is, in part, what Paul said was driving him that there would be Gentiles who would come to glorify God for his mercy. In other words, it's not just the compulsion of what they had seen and heard. It's the end result when someone believes in Christ and trusts in Christ and comes to know their creator and redeemer and begins to give him praise through their life. And then in eternity, when that one, along with all the others, stands before or rather kneels before the throne of God and gives him praise. Does that ever move you? and motivate you to preach the gospel for the glory of God so that people who are who are lost in darkness and sin and perishing will one day come to the place where they believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're saved and one day will join us so that we can worship our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that on your heart? You ever look through the pages of Revelation and see all of these worshipers? worshiping around the throne, and that stirs you up, it ought to stir you up. I believe it's part of what stirred the disciples. So we don't see it in the text here. You can read through the Old Testament and the New and see that anticipation that God is doing something great as his salvation extends to the ends of the earth, and many, many are saved and now worshiping God. He's going to receive the glory. And I want to be a part of that. Do you want to be a part of that? Preach the gospel. It's what he's given us to do. It's a privilege to do. Verse 20 again, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Is that your heart? just want to encourage you. That's worth meditating. It might be worth taking out a card and taking that through the week with you and saying, is this true? Lord, make this true of me that I that as I interact with others, that what comes out of my mouth and what comes out of my heart is just a desire to evangelize and tell others the good news so they might have salvation, so that I wouldn't be able to help it, so that what's stopping me is not the lack of confidence, but actually there's a well, and certainly we do have a well, the Holy Spirit who's inside of us, who who causes that truth to come out 
by His grace, with His help. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, that's a problem for the Sanhedrin. Because they want these guys silenced. They, they, they're coming to the very same issue that they came to before. I mean, they can't deny the miracle. But let's, let's stop this by telling these men to be silent, to not teach, to not speak at all in Jesus' name. And their response is, uh, we, hey, we have to obey God. We can't stop doing this. So what do they resort to? I want you to notice in verse 21 what really is driving these pragmatists. Uh, Skipping the parenthetical part there, when they had threatened them further, they let them go on account of the people. What's driving them? What was driving them before when they had plotted to kill Jesus, but they stopped from doing it at a certain time? Why did they stop? It's the people. I say they're pragmatists. They were doing things in a way that, that would make them appear to be good and appear to be governing rightly. But if it came down to it and nobody was looking, they'd do what they wanted to do. It's just in this situation, there's too much public awareness of this miracle. And so... All they can do, verse 21, is threaten them further. All they can do is say, we will punish you if you do this. They don't have a basis for it. They don't have the truth on their side. The miracle was done in Jesus' name, the apostles argued. That salvation is in no other name. That's what the apostles had said. They're preaching and teaching in Jesus' name by God's authority. God's given them authority for what they're doing, and they must do so. They've got to do it. Now, if they're not pragmatic, but they're actually listening to the apostles, and they're, and they're understanding what's going on, you have to say, For a man, and it says it in verse 22, for a man who's more than 40 years old to suddenly have the, who's never walked, to suddenly have the ability to walk. I mean, that doesn't happen every day. That just doesn't happen. So how could that have happened? Maybe this really is God. Maybe God has worked in a way. Maybe maybe Jesus was the messenger of God. I mean, you could see how someone might start to think that way. Well, later in the book of Acts, some of these priests are actually going to see more of what God is doing through Jesus' name in Jerusalem, and he's going to change their hearts. But here there's a blindness. There's an opposition. There's a pragmatism. Instead of considering that they could be wrong and that God had indeed done this and that they were in the wrong, they threatened the disciples. Paul spoke about this 
blindness and spiritual darkness in Romans, where he quotes from Deuteronomy and Isaiah, where he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not. And Paul said, down to this very day. Paul himself was witness to the reality that there was a veil over the hearts of these people. Paul had a veil over his own heart. Remember? He, he was so intense on persecuting Christ that he got letters from the high priest to go to Damascus some distance away just to persecute Christians. That was his blindness. That was the veil in his life. Paul testified to that reality in the life of his nation when he said, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But then he says this, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Blind eyes see. The hard heart is melted by God's divine working through the preaching of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to turn a person from their darkness to light. Would to God that he would do that here. If there's someone listening to the message today and you have never believed in Jesus Christ, that God would open your eyes, that you could say, like John Newton, I once was blind, but now I can see. Because what you can see if you come to Jesus Christ is that what the Bible says about him is really true. That there really is salvation in no one else. And that you can be forgiven for all your sins if you put your trust in him. I want you to notice at the end of this section, verses 21 and 22, the threat is given, a further threat. But there's a release. And the reason for the release is the people. What are the people doing? The people who had observed this miracle are all, notice what it says, end of verse 21, they're all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. That word miracle is the word sign. A sign, it was a sign that pointed to something. What is this sign pointing to? Well, first of all, it's a sign that God has the power to heal. It's a sign consistent with Peter's message that God has the power to bring about the times of refreshing that he spoke of in the prophecy of Isaiah, when in those times of refreshing, the lame will leap like a deer. This sign testified to that word before that Isaiah said that there's a time coming when refreshing is going to come and God is going to work in such a way that this kind of thing happens because the power of God will be present. It's also a sign that Peter and John are authentic messengers. 
God is testifying with Peter and John to the truth. That's what Hebrews 2 says. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So Peter and John are testifying, but here's God testifying that they're telling the truth. Watch this. And the healing is performed. It's obviously also a sign that Jesus' name has the power to heal and to save. It's a sign that Jesus is alive, that he is risen, that he has in in his authorization allowed and actually planned for this to happen for a testimony to Israel, to the thousands that were saved on this day, as well as to the very rulers of the nation. And it's an undeniable sign. You just can't, even when you're the enemies here, you can't deny that this has happened. And I trust, and I believe, if you read through the rest of the book of Acts, that it's a sign that must have lodged in their heart. Like many of the other signs. I mean, later in the book of Acts, if you just keep on reading, Many of these priests present in the temple, I'm not talking about necessarily the rulers in the Sanhedrin because they eventually killed uh, even Stephen, but there are those in the temple witnessing these kinds of miracles that are actually believing in the Lord because God is doing things that are unmistakable, giving testimony to his gospel. And there are those who respond. There are also those who just continue in their hardness of heart. I'll close with a quote came across in thinking about this passage and studying this passage. An author by the name of Bach who wrote, B-O-C-K, wrote a commentary in the book of Acts, said this. He said, the church's call is to be loyal to God in sharing the message of the gospel, of course, and doing so in such a way that its impact on believers' lives is evident. The call is not to impose the gospel on others. Some will not welcome such a testimony. They are left to go their own way with its tragic consequences. You just think about this scene. God is presenting testimony to the rulers of Israel in an unmistakable way. But he's not mandating. He's not, he's not imposing. He's putting his witnesses in their very presence where they are trying the witnesses, but the witnesses are actually preaching the gospel and they're being tried. What are they going to do with that? How are they going to respond to that message? You think about the patience of God in that? That he had not destroyed these very men who had crucified Jesus? In other words, God could come in and just clean house and do away with all of these people. But these are his people. The veil over their eyes, some of them, he will remove that veil for them. And like Paul, they will come to embrace their Messiah and recognize him for who he truly is. 
But I think that's a sad statement when he says they're left to go their own way with its tragic consequences, those who don't welcome the testimony. I mean, Annas and Caiaphas came face to face with Jesus Christ himself, and he claimed to be the Messiah. He proved himself to be the Messiah through raising people from the dead, from doing all these kinds of miracles. If Annas and Caiaphas end up in hell, it will be after the face-to-face confrontation with God himself and all of this testimony. It'll be a testimony. I don't know their eternal case, but it would be a testimony to the hardness of their hearts, wouldn't it? And you might not have had that, certainly don't have that same kind of privilege with seeing these miracles or seeing Christ in person, but you have been presented with the truth of God's word. And I would ask you, what are you doing with that? What are you doing with that? In other words, the same gospel message, the truth about Jesus has come to you. Somebody has preached a message from God's word to you. What are you going to do with that? Will you receive it? Will you believe it? Maybe this is the first time. Will you reject it? Maybe this isn't the first time. Will you reject it again? Don't reject it again. Don't harden your heart. Bow your knee to Jesus Christ. Believe who he truly is. And join us one day at the throne as we worship the lamb for sinners slain. Let's pray. Lord, we bow and we praise you for the gospel message. We do pray, Lord, for anyone who is here present who has yet to put their trust in Christ. Lord, today, Open their eyes. Bring them from darkness to light. Remove the veil. Make tender that hard heart. Give them grace, Lord, to bow the knee to Jesus. Surrender. Turn from their sin. And find new life, forgiveness of sins, and salvation in Jesus Christ. For us who believe, Lord, we pray that the power that is found in the gospel message will energize us to not only believe it, rejoice in it, but to proclaim it ourselves. And we pray that even this week that we would meditate on what those apostles were convinced of, that they had to preach this message. So part of who they were because of what your spirit had done in them and made them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.